Well, I've spent my entire adult life either working in nonprofits or working with nonprofits. And I have had the privilege of seeing some of the most amazing nonprofit organizations out there. Today, I want to tell you about one of the very best, and they're right here in our backyard. They're called Little Lights. So Little Lights was founded over 25 years ago by Grace's own Steve Park. And Little Light's mission is to empower underserved youth and families. Today, we serve about 150 students every year. We have several hundred volunteers every year. Clean Green Team, this year we have nine guys on the team. We serve several hundred customers on Capitol Hill. That's amazing uh, to have work for the guys and they do a great job. And then even Family Center. So last year we distributed 35,000 diapers. We help adults look for jobs, have access to computer, internet. It's great that we're able to provide more services to the entire community. Well, as amazing as those numbers are, it's actually the deeper thing that's happening underneath those numbers that's so incredibly impressive. I'm always inspired by the resiliency of community members that that hang in there, love their kids, you know, and, and do the best that they can with the limited resources that they have. And we just try to come alongside and be supportive. Kids who grow up in our program will come back to us, and whether they might need a part-time job or they might need help with their resume, you know, in some ways our primary ministry is just to be the presence and to be in relationship and be a support system. Well, did you catch that? Primary ministry of Little Lights is to be in relationship. It's to come alongside and empower those in the community that they're serving. You know what makes the very best nonprofits? Those organizations that can humbly come alongside. Because if you want to see lasting change in a community, it's all about that deeper relationship. Steve and Mary have been a part of every major life experience, good or bad. You know, when my grandmother passed away, Steve was there. When I graduated from high school, Steve was there. When I graduated from college, he was there. When I got married, he was there. Those are the ways that I see the caring part. Because at the end of the day, you can buy all types of things. You know, and Little Lights provided me with my first ever laptop computer. But that pales in comparison to having them there at every point in my life. It's all about that relationship. If you're looking to make a difference, link arms with an organization that is truly having an impact in our community. I encourage you to check out that link on your screen and find out the opportunities that you can have to serve with Little Lights. Now, it is my great honor and privilege to introduce the founder and executive director of Little Lights, Grace's very own Steve Park. Hello, Grace Community Church. It is so good to be with you this Sunday morning. Let me read this from the Gospel of Matthew. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. 
You know, first, I wanted to thank Grace Community Church for their partnership in ministry for many years. And I've been blessed to be a part of the Grace Community family for several years as well. So I actually started Little Lights in 1995. And so we just celebrated our 26th anniversary. Little Lights serves vulnerable children, youth, and families in Washington, D.C. And we focus on public housing communities. The average household income of the families we serve is about $15,000 per year. So imagine trying to raise a thriving family on $15,000 or even less per year in Washington, D.C. You know, these public housing communities are difficult places for children to grow up in. Almost all of our students have had a close family member become victim of homicide or currently have a family member who, who is incarcerated. There is a palatable sense of marginalization and hopelessness in these communities. So this is where Little Lights tries to step in. We share the love of Christ through academic support, practical assistance, as well as economic empowerment by creating jobs in the community. But literally the last thing I thought I would be doing with my life when I was in college was leading a ministry. And that's because I was actually a very devout atheist in high school and college. You know, I was the type of person on campus that would argue with Christians about how can you believe in God? This is the 20th century. You know, don't you believe in science? So I never stepped foot inside of a church my entire, you know, college life. But while I was in college, I wasn't a very happy person. In fact, I had probably what you'd call a walking depression. I wasn't a very joyful person. I had a hard time being motivated. So I just socialized a lot, went to a lot of parties and clubs, and that's how I got by. But after college, I moved back to the D.C. area where I went to high school. And I was actually living with a couple of my best friends from college in in Arlington. And one of my best friends was somebody who was really into the stock market. Like he was a pretty rich kid, and he was constantly looking at his stock quotes. It was a sort of form of gambling for him. But one day he took this vacation and came back from vacation and, and told me that he didn't care about the stock market anymore. And I was like completely shocked because he was obsessed with the stock market before he went on this vacation. And what had happened was he didn't have a religious conversion, but he took this drug called ecstasy. And he was so excited about it. And he was telling me that I had to try it. But I had a bad drug experience in college. So I was kind of afraid. But he was very persuasive. He was a good salesman and he convinced me to try this drug. And so I did. So we went down to a nightclub in DC and I tried this drug and, and I joined him in his excitement. I thought, this is what we've been looking for. This is what, you know, is going to give us hope. And so we started doing this drug on a, a regular basis. But then a few months into it, I had an incredibly bad experience on it. I remember it was like 5 a.m. I was in a parking lot after a rave, and I think it was in the state of Delaware. I can't even remember where it was. We hadn't slept on all night, but all of a sudden, after taking this drug, all of a sudden, I just felt spiritually attacked. I just felt the most intense fear that I had ever experienced. It's an experience that I can't even describe. It was so horrific. I can only describe it as intense spiritual warfare. And it didn't wear off. That fear, that terror just was not wearing off. So hour after hour, week after week, I just, that terror persisted in my life. 
it got to the point where I finally tell my parents what I was going through. And my parents were immigrant parents. They owned a small business in D.C. They worked 80 hours a week. And I was trying to tell them how scared I was. But, you know, they really didn't know what to do. A book that helped me go in the right direction as an atheist was a book called The Road Less Traveled. I was desperate for any kind of help. But I remember reading the first sentence of the book, and it was just three words. Life is difficult. And it really grabbed my attention because what I was going through was the most difficult experience I've ever been through. And it also countered the message that I received as a young person growing up in America. You know, the media will tell us, like, life's supposed to be easy. If you're young and American, life's supposed to be easy. But what I was going through was just so difficult. And the book resonated with me because it countered that message that life was supposed to be easy. And this book was written by a psychologist. And the premise of the book is that love is the foundation to mental health. And as I was reading the book, I realized that my existential problem in life was not that I didn't have enough money or I didn't have the right girlfriend. That the biggest existential question in my life was that I did not feel loved, that I did not feel valuable as a person. In fact, I had lots of feelings of worthlessness. And I really wasn't open to the church. So I did what the book recommended, which was to practice vulnerability. So it was at the therapist's office that I was first able to tell another human being that I was lonely, that I was scared, and that I was really tired. And I really believe when we move toward vulnerability, we're moving toward God. When we're moving toward honesty, we're moving toward God, whether we know it or not. And it was New Year's Eve of 1993. I was sharing with my sister that I was depressed, I was hopeless, and I was really losing the will to live. And all she did was embrace me physically, but she did it with such tenderness that I broke down weeping uncontrollably for 30 straight minutes. I just bawled my eyes out in her arms, and I experienced compassion and grace in a way that I'd never experienced before. I really felt accepted. And God really opened my heart to what true compassion was, and I never saw the world the same way again. At that moment, I realized the most important thing in life was not wealth or power or status or popularity. It was really compassion and love. That this is what the world really needs. Our world is starving for compassion and love. My parents finally convinced me to attend a church. And the way they convinced me was to tell me that the senior pastor had done worse drugs than I did uh, when, I, when he was young. And so I attended the church. When I heard the sermon, I really felt like I'm in the right place. But the book that actually got me to become a Christian was actually a book called World Religions by Houston Smith. So I read this book. I read about the five major religions. And as I read about the other religions, you know, I gained a lot. I said, there's wisdom here. And it's, it was interesting. But when I read the last chapter on Christianity, the light really came on for me. One, I realized Jesus was not who I thought he was. What differentiated Jesus from the other major religious leaders was his radical compassion for people, and especially his radical compassion for people on the margins, the poor, the tax collector, the leper, 
all the rejects of society, Jesus loved and showed dignity to. And that just blew me away. And I remember recognizing who Jesus was and repenting. Repenting of my selfishness. Here I was, I had lived my whole life totally selfishly. I just lived for my own desires. But here was this Jesus who loved people compassionately, who sacrificed to the point where he gave his own life on the cross. That was truly humbling. And I remember repenting and weeping and repenting of my selfishness and self-centeredness. You might be thinking the word repentance is kind of a downer, but I don't see it that way. It can be difficult to look inside of ourselves, look inside our own hearts and see our addictions and see our character flaws and see the areas that we need to change. This can be painful, but this is the path to true freedom. The first thesis in Martin Luther's 95 Thesis is as follows. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. We need to ask God to remove the idols in our life that prevent us from the blessed and abundant life. God's love is radical. The Latin root for the word radical is radix, where we get the word radish. It's about getting to the root. Christianity is not a tame spirituality. It is radical in its depth, in its compassion and care for others. So after this experience of compassion and coming to faith in Jesus, God began to really change my life. I started volunteering in the neighborhood where my parents owned a small business. And I started meeting kids in the neighborhood. And I really fell in love with these kids. And what was amazing was before I came to know Christ, I really didn't like being around kids or wanted to have my own kids. But God really filled my heart with compassion for children, especially children in need in our city. As I began to see the need in this community, my heart really broke. And what really convicted me to start Little Lights was meeting a young man named Daryl. Daryl was an eighth grader, a football player. He came out to the day camp inside my parents' studio. He was a really gentle kid, and he was my height, 5'8", in eighth grade. But I realized that during the camp, as we were trying to read, that he could not read a Dr. Seuss book in eighth grade. And my heart really broke for him and other kids that I was meeting in the neighborhood that needed a lot of attention, that needed support, and were also behind academically. As I saw the need in the community, I felt the need to keep going and building relationships with these students. So Little Lights began inside my parents' Taekwondo studio as a Christian tutoring and Bible study program. So I experienced profound joy by serving these students and building relationships with people in the community. And through this joy, I wanted other people to experience it. So I began to recruit volunteers at a local church as well as a campus fellowship. And so Little Lights has now been going for over 26 years serving the vulnerable in Washington, D.C. Little Lights now has 13 full-time staff and more than 700 volunteers every year to bring the hope of Christ into our communities. And I'm also amazed by the resilience and the hard work of our students. 
We have high school students coming at nine in the morning every week to get extra tutoring because they want to go to college or they want to have a great life after high school. It's really exciting work that's happening at Little Lights. If we want to be light of the world, our faith cannot just be about a set of beliefs or just knowledge in the Bible. It has to be a radical way of life that others can observe. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Micah 6 8. Because in just one verse, it really teaches us how to live a life in such a way that we can be light into the world. So Micah 6 8 states, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And this verse comes in the context of the book of Micah, where God is calling out the nation of Israel for not being obedient to him. And the nation of Israel is arguing with God. Micah 6, verses 6 through 7 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So the nation of Israel is trying to just give offerings or religious activity as compensation for God to receive their blessing. And God calls us to this lifestyle of justice, compassion, and humility. And I see these three as like three legs on a stool. You need all three for it to function properly. The word justly here is mishpat in Hebrew. And here's how Tim Keller describes this word. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That is what it means to do justice. So justice is about looking out for the weak. It's using our power and privilege to defend those who are vulnerable in society. Theologian Bruce Walke puts it this way, The basic meaning of this word, mishpat, is to establish the heavenly norm or pattern on earth. Normally, this concept is applied to society, i.e. the bringing of society into the right order or arrangement. So justice is about using power in a way that's fair, that brings flourishing for all people, especially those on the margins. And Dr. Cornell West says it this way, justice is what love looks like in public. The next characteristic of a God-centered life in this verse is mercy. And the Hebrew word is hesed. This is a very rich word, and there's no exact translation in English, but it's been translated as steadfast love, loving kindness, and also described as unswerving loyalty, even to the least deserving. It's a deep, unconditional kind of love. And it reminds me of the quote from Mother Teresa. Love is giving until it hurts. 
Hesed is a love that's sacrificial and committed. Let me share with you about a time at Little Lights that I experienced Hesed. It was early on in the ministry, and it was near Christmas time. And there was a girl named Lamita who had been coming regularly to, to the program. I remember visiting her at her home. Her family lived in poverty. I walked into the living room. There was no furniture. There was water leaking from the ceiling. I went upstairs, and in the bedroom, there was just a mattress with no sheets, just on the ground, and no pillows. And my heart really broke for her and her family. But Lamita was just five years old. You know, she wasn't one of the popular kids. Sometimes she got picked on by other kids. But she had a big heart. And I remember one Christmas time, she came to our program, and she shyly came up to me, and she pulled out her hand, and on her palm was a shiny quarter. And she said, Merry Christmas, Mr. Steve. And she gave me this gift. I think if I was five, and I probably only had a quarter to my name, the first thing I would have done was go to the corner store to buy candy for myself. But here was this girl with so little, but she wanted to show her love to me. And it's probably the only quarter that she had to her name. And so she sacrificed until it hurts for me to share that hesed with me. I felt so humbled and blessed by her generosity and compassion to me. So hesed, the steadfast Unwavering love is a very important part of Little Lights. Let me share with you a story of Eugene Rivers. Eugene Rivers was a pastor in Boston during a time when the murder rate in Boston was really high. And as a pastor, he wondered why so many young people did not come to church. That so many young people in his community were just hanging out in the street corner and and some were dealing drugs, but Very few came to his church. So he went out into the community and started to talk to people. And he met this one drug dealer in the community and asked him the question, why are the kids coming to you and not to me? Why do they not come to church? And the drug dealer had a very simple answer. And he said, I'm there and you're not. I'm there when Johnny comes home from school and you're not. So the drug dealer knew very well that the way to influence people was through relationship and by being present day after day after day. And that's what Little Lights tries to do. We, we're we not there just one day a week. We're there with the students and the families day after day after day, sometimes seven days a week with mentoring programs, academic programs, college and career programs, job placement programs. We're there as a presence day after day, week after week, and that's part of our philosophy. So let me ask you this question. When have you experienced Hesed in your life? I hope we've all had a chance to experience it, and I hope that we see God as one who brings Hesed into our life. And if we've experienced that Hesed, how are we producing that in others and helping others to experience it? Micah 6.8 is truly a high calling. God also calls us to a life of humility. The Hebrew word here is sana. 
especially in the work that we do at Little Lights, humility is crucial. We don't want to go into vulnerable communities trying to be saviors or coming in with judgment. We really try to emphasize teachability and mutual respect. We make it a focus to learn from the community and in a deeper, committed relationship, really have fellowship that's mutual and dignified. I love this quote from Tim Keller about humility. He says, True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. So Micah 6.8 is a verse that I meditate on regularly, and I encourage you to do so as well. It really does take a lifelong commitment of faith to try to live out that verse in reality. Lastly, I wanted to share about my passion for unity in the body of Christ. I've been so blessed working at Little Lights as a Korean American with a diverse staff, diverse volunteers, working in a primarily African-American community, and just developing relationships across racial and class lines. It's been such a rich experience for me, and I want other people to experience that blessing. I remember one of the things that broke my heart as a new believer was walking into churches and realizing that 11 o'clock Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America. And to see the disunity really broke my heart as a new Christian after experiencing this radical love and beginning to worship this Lord and Savior who was inclusive and caring and compassionate. I didn't understand how Christians could worship Jesus but have such disunity across racial and class lines. And I want to read Matthew again. It says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. The you here, as in many parts in the Bible, is plural. But because of our cultural lens, and in some ways the deficits of the English language, we almost always interpret this you as singular. But here it is plural. We're supposed to be light together as the full church, as the full body of Christ. And so you see the metaphor of the city on a hill. It's really a corporate call to be light into the world. So if we want to be the light, we have to do it together. And this is why I teach the Race Literacy 101 class at Little Lights. It's to try to help bridge this divide. Racism has divided the church, both in the past and in the present. There's conflict that we haven't reconciled. We haven't healed from the injustices of the past. The church in North America has never experienced a truly unified church across racial lines in any kind of scale. So we actually don't know what unity could look like. I really believe we can't solve a problem that we don't understand. For instance, many of us have never even been taught that the concept of race itself is a fairly new invention. So this is why we don't see the categories of white, black, Asian in the Bible, because those categories had not been invented yet. So in the class, with a spirit of grace and truth, 
We try to learn together and discuss honestly and to do the hard work of unity building. Because without this unity building, we'll never experience the blessing that God has for us to be a bigger light into the world. The life of transformational discipleship found in Micah 6.8 is difficult, but life-changing. I really believe it points us to the truly blessed and abundant life. As I close with this prayer, I want you to pray with me that God would give us a heart of radical compassion and a vision for a church and a world that reflects God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Grant us, Lord God, a vision of your world as your love would have it. A world where the weak are protected and none go hungry or poor. A world where the riches of creation are shared and everyone can enjoy them. A world where people from diverse cultures and backgrounds live in harmony and mutual respect. A world where peace is built with justice and justice is guided by love. Give us the inspiration and courage to build it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.